Father, that's our heart's cry today. You are all that we need. We cast our care upon you. We've taken time to wait before you today, God, and we are hungry to hear from you. I pray that you'll not just open our hearts and mind, that we will hear what it is you have to say. I pray that you will give us the will and the boldness to obey what it is that you want to teach us today. I ask these things, Father, in your Son's precious name. Amen. Amen. As we continue on our series on the Sermon on the Mount entitled Revolutionary Love, just a quick reminder in case you missed the opening week or two. What's so revolutionary about this love and what does that have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? That has everything to do with that. God so loved us that He gave His only Son that whoever should believe in Him should not die, should not perish, but have everlasting life. We've heard it so much, it becomes ritual, it becomes just another church phrase to us at times, but God did to the world downright ungodly things to get to the likes of you and I. He gave of His Son, allowed Him to die on the cross, became sin, the one who knew no sin, conquered sin, death, and the grave. It's this revolutionary love that Jesus lived out where he did inside out, upside down, backwards things that was so counter-cultural that the religious leaders didn't recognize him as the Messiah. They didn't want to admit that this could possibly be the one that God has provided for us. Jesus began teaching his disciples, though there were many crowds around, the disciples came forward, and this message, this greatest sermon ever preached, was intended for the disciples. And there were the onlookers, and then there were the skeptics there as well. Jesus knows this, he sees this, he can not only see them, he can no doubt see the thoughts in their mind. Jesus shifts into this teaching today. If you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, we'll be looking at verse 1 through 18 in just a few moments. He's going to be talking about one key thought throughout three sections of this text. This passage reminds me of the story of a little boy who went to a store clerk and said, I am shopping for a birthday gift for my mom. Birthday shopping is an awesome thing. I've been reminding everybody at my house that they need to be getting ready for birthday shopping. In fact, right now, I want you to get in on remembering what the greatest birthday gift you ever gave to anyone. I want you to think about it. In fact, I want you to turn to the person to your left or your right, if there's no one seated by you, in front of you, or behind you, or whatever. And in just in 42 seconds, I want you to ask him this question. What is the greatest birthday gift you have ever given And then I want you to pause and hear the other person, all right? 42 seconds on your mark, get set, go. Ask them that question. What's the greatest birthday gift you've ever given? All right, if you haven't switched yet, go ahead and switch. Find out with the other person the best gift that they ever gave. Thinking of that, when you did your best birthday giving, this little boy goes to the sales clerk. He asks or tells him that I am shopping for a birthday gift for my mom, and I want to see all of the cookie jars that you have. And uh, that salesman says, okay, come over here, look at these cookie jars. And he walks up to the first one, he takes the lid off, examines it, puts it down, and 
shakes a little bit and shakes his head no and moves to the next one. He does the same thing on the second, on the third, on the fourth. He comes to the last cookie jar that they carry, the fifth one, picks it up, puts it down. He hears the cling of the metal lid and he looks at the salesman and says, don't you have any cookie jars that don't make noise when you close them? It's moments like this where you say, was that birthday gift for mom or was it so you could be extra sneaky when you got cookies later on? I mean, you can think through birthday gifts that you've given. I I remember (laughs) uh, I told a story on my wife last week, and so payback, I'll tell one on me. When we first got married, I thought my wife would like nothing better than a TV for her birthday. You know, that was not a wise choice to make. Because I'd been talking the last three or four weeks before that how much I thought we needed a new TV. And I thought, what a better way to get a new TV than to give it to my wife for her birthday. Everybody's happy on that. But the motives in what we give, the motive in that gift is what changed everything. It's amazing the kind of things that our kids can bring home to us that they've made at camp, they've made at school, and we're not quite sure even what it is necessarily. But if we sense the motive of their heart, it becomes precious to us. The opposite is true as well. Jesus is talking about these motives and how right actions need to be accompanied with right motives. Let's look at this first chunk of Scripture in verse 1 through 4 of chapter 6 on the Sermon on the Mount. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men. To be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. That first key area that Jesus is talking about motives is the disciples motive in giving. What is Jesus trying to say? I think if we boiled it down to this, it would simply be, don't let misplaced motives cause you to miss out on God's blessing. Don't let misplaced motives cause you to miss out on God's blessing. Now, whenever we talk about motives, sometimes out of necessity, we feel a little convicted and we may feel guilty. But Jesus is teaching here today, I'm convinced, is not to make the disciples and the crowd and the, and the uh, spectators and the critics feel extra guilty. He says, when you have misplaced motives, you miss the blessing that God has for you. Today, Jesus doesn't want you to feel guilty when you walk out of here. There, there may be some conviction and that's a different thing. He, he, he wants you to experience the full blessing that he has for you. And misplaced motives, wrong motives, do not allow you to receive his blessing. See, this is the key. Jesus is not trying to scold the disciples. He's trying to bless them, but they are getting in the way. See, God calls us to give because the blessing we get is it frees us up from our self-centeredness. When I give, and it's not for a selfish motive, it's not for something that I get in return, I have the joy of giving, it reminds me that it's not about me. It reminds me that the cookie jar is just for mom, it's not so I can sneak more out later. It reminds me that the TV should have been just for my wife, not that I could get two things done at the same time. 
And Jesus says, when you're giving, don't give for what you can get. When you give in public, when you give like the hypocrites do in the streets, you're gaining something. He didn't say you won't get something when you give for wrong motives. You will get notoriety. You may get fame. You may get a thank you. You may get applause. You may be owed a favor. You may get some points with somebody. Jesus says, hey, it's not that all that is so wrong, though that is not right. It's that you do not have room in your heart for the glory that I want to give to you. Don't let misplaced motives cause you to miss out on God's blessing. When we do something for someone else, when we give them a resource, money, a gift, when we give them a service, when we rescue them, when we bring attention to them that when they need attention, and we staple our own agenda to that gift, it short-circuits what God wants to do. When we add strings to this gift that we give, it does not allow us to receive from God the blessing that he intended for us to get. Stripping us of ourself, stripping us of our self-centeredness. Some of us aren't quite so sure we want that blessing. Some of us are okay with pinning our own agenda on there. We're not so sure we want to be more selfless, that we want to be more Christ-like. We just want to get the points for giving. So let's get this straight. Jesus is saying every time you give and, and someone is around and they see it, it is wrong. Is, is that right? Your motive, if your motive is to get credit and applause and good standing with someone and even points with someone else, then yes. So never give to anyone in public. Never give to anyone when it can be traced back to you. Is that right? Not a chance. Blah, Jesus, what are you saying to us? Jesus is not after this undercover secret agent follower of him that no one can detect that they are a follower of Christ. In fact, throughout Scripture, that doesn't make sense. He's getting at something deeper. He's getting at the motive. And he uses this tool to give in secret to check the motive of your heart. Think of it this way. Imagine a lifeguard living by this principle. A lifeguard who gives the gift of saving a life when someone is in distress in the water. Can you imagine that lifeguard seeing the hand go up flailing and the person gasping for air and the lifeguard's looking out and saying, I I see that hand, just hang on a few more moments, wait till this crowd passes by, I'll come save you when no one is looking. That's absurd. You say, well, dive in the water and get them and bring them out right now. Well, then Jesus is saying that it doesn't really matter if there's a crowd there. Well, let's imagine this going the other way. What if the lifeguard had a different opinion? And he said, I see that hand, you're struggling, you need some help, and you just hang on just a minute right there because uh, I would like there to be more of a crowd. The camera crew's on their way, I'd like to get this on film, this could be really good for me, and I could get some attention. The lifeguard doesn't care who is there or who is not there. Their job is to save the life of the person who's in distress. Jesus is saying, when you give, give out of the heart of gratitude of what your Father has given to you. It shouldn't matter who is there. But the problem is, we have a hard time gauging our own motives. And so not because God wants all of our giving to be in secret, He wants to give us a tool to check the motive of our heart. He says, try this out. Give, check your heart, 
by giving and no one knows who gave and see if you still want to give. You see, if the lifeguard is willing to save a life even when no one is on the beach, then he's doing his job. It doesn't mean he shouldn't do his job when someone is there, but the motive is to save that life, not to get in the paper. See, they are focused on who they are giving to and what it is they are giving, not on who is watching. This is the way it should be when a disciple is giving. Jesus is saying, don't miss the blessing. Let it be what you do when no one is watching reveals your true motives. Now, this principle is going to be weaved through the next number of sections in this passage of Scripture. What you do when no one is watching reveals your true motives. It's a litmus test for us. Are you getting this today, church? Sometimes we come to these passages and I believe we miss Jesus' entire point. We hide behind this cloak of secret personal Christianity, and we make this passage to mean things that Jesus never intended it to mean, to say, yes, I am pretty excited that you should not know what I give. In fact, we become so obsessed with our anonymity that we begin to focus on other people and saying, you have no idea what I give, you have no idea what I pray, you have no idea when I fast, and I am more concerned that you have no idea about what's going on in my life than I am about even giving the way God called me to give. Jesus was not after a secret, covert Christianity. He was saying, let your heart be pure. Why? Not so he can give you a spiritual spanking if you don't. He wants to embrace you with his blessings. And he has something for you you'll miss if you short-circuit it. Well, let's move on. Jesus takes the same tone in a different area. Verse 5 through 15. And when you pray... Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Jesus is clearly teaching and instructing on prayer, but the heart of this passage is on motives. What is your motive when you give? What is your motive when you pray? To live like a disciple, we need to have this love that is so inside out backwards that it changes our heart. And our heart begins to give differently. Our heart approaches prayer differently. And soon we'll see our heart approaches fasting differently. This is not something you conjure up in your own strength. But what Jesus has done in you causes you to see and to pray differently. What is your motive when you pray? Does God care how we pray? Absolutely. In fact, right here at this beginning in verse 5, 
we see how to pray. We are not to pray because of who is around, but because a holy God is listening to us. When we pray only because who is around, we fall into the trap of the hypocrites that Jesus was talking about. But we are not to pray because who's around us. We are to pray because a holy God is listening to us. Now, church, this truth is so plain, it's so simple. My concern today is we miss the gravity it has on our life. There is a blessing wrapped up in this that God wants to give to you. And if we don't hang on to this truth, we will miss the blessing that's intended to give us strength to go through this journey as Christians. We are not to pray because who's around us. We are to pray because a holy God is listening to us. Church, this is a good one for us. We need to just park here for a moment and do some self-examination. I believe that we struggle with this a lot. I don't mean just you or just me, though that's probably true in both of our lives. But for us as the church as a whole, this is an issue for us. How often when someone comes up to pray or how often when we're in a gathering when someone prays, do we begin to think about them How they look when they pray. Have you noticed how certain people look when they pray? Some people take their glasses off when they pray. I don't know why they do that. I do that sometimes. I'm not quite sure why I do. Some people just look intense when they pray. Some people just are excited when they pray. We begin to think, well, look look how they pray. And it begins to affect us. And then we take note of the words they use and how they rhyme it and how they string it together. And, And pretty soon, we're not praying with them. We're watching them pray. And it's kind of Weird to just sit and watch them talk to God. We then make mental notes sometimes because we're outwardly focused on how someone else prays. We go, I'm going to try that on. I'm going to kind of get that in on my prayer. I'm going to kind of do that thing in my prayer. You know what? That was a pretty good phrase. I'm going to use that. I remember as a young man, I, I heard someone pray and they said, God, hide them behind the cross today. I thought, oh, that sounds so good. I need to try that on. I wrote that down. I'm going to pray that next time I pray. That sounds really good. God, hide me behind the cross today. Is there anything wrong with saying that? No. But my intent in that at that moment was not a, a motive to be hidden behind Jesus. It was that sounded really good in prayer. We take this to the other side. Some of us, when, when we're in prayer, we're so focused on another person and it's out of fear. See, I, I could never pray out loud like that. I, I don't have a good prayer look. My vocabulary is not real strong. My mind isn't organized like that. When I say things, it just comes out like a mess. All of those thoughts are taking us away from a holy God is listening to you. You're focusing on who is around you, not a holy God who is listening. Jesus says, let the motive change how you approach prayer. Now, now, now don't misunderstand what Jesus is teaching here. For some of us, this is the key truth of why we came to church today. Jesus is not condemning public prayer. He is uncovering the absence of private prayer. Jesus is not condemning public prayer. He's uncovering this absence of private prayer. There is plenty of places throughout Scripture that call us to pray together as brothers and sisters in the Lord. There's plenty of places to see evidence of those who are following God, to cry out to Him in the midst of a public place and in a public setting, especially even when there's ridicule happening. But Jesus is saying, if you only want to talk to me when people are gathered and you never want to talk to me when it's just you and I, I'm pretty sure you don't even really want to talk to me. 
And so for those of us who've hidden behind this passage and say, see, because of my comfort level, I don't want to pray in a group. I don't want to pray in public. Hold on, because the convicting point is still there for all of us. This is not about do you pray in public or not. It's is there evidence of intentional communication with God in your private life? Here's a way to ask this question. When was the last time that you planned a conversation with God in private? Now, I'm not putting down that drive-by shout-out to God when you're thinking of something and you just shoot up an arrow prayer. There's nothing wrong with that. That is godly and that's a part of praying without ceasing. But the question still remains, when was the last time you planned an intentional conversation with God in private? Now notice I didn't ask when was the last time you prayed an hour by yourself or a minute and a half by yourself. The question is, do you ever set aside time to say, God, I want to talk to you. You say, well, well, I don't know if, if, if I'm made that way or wired that way. Hey, I want you to think about your spouse. If the only time you spoke to them was in passing, if the only time you spoke to them was when you needed something, how far would that go with you in your relationship with your spouse? Jesus is saying, the hypocrites are hypocrites because they love to pray when people watch. But there's not evidence of them wanting to talk to a holy God, listen to a holy God who is there to communicate with them. We can turn this anonymity thing into a focus on others. Well, it's not your business how much I pray. Just read what Jesus said. I'm in my prayer closet. And it's not my business how much you pray. But Jesus is saying, the love that revolutionized this world should revolutionize your heart and it should change your motive in prayer, not to see how quiet you can be behind closed doors, but to see how focused you are on a holy God who is listening. And my guess is, when your attention is on a holy God who's listening, who's with you wherever you go, there'll be moments when someone else is around and you're going to say, excuse me, I'm talking to God right now. Or you gather with brothers and sisters and you say, this isn't the first time I've talked to my God this week. I I feel a little bit more comfortable, not in my vocabulary, not in my appearance. Because to be honest, I don't really care what you think about me when we pray. I care about who I'm praying to and how he hears us. Amen? Jesus is saying, when I change your heart, it's going to change the way you give. It's going to change the way you pray. Jesus tells us to pray with sincerity and thoughtfulness. So, what is the right word count for a prayer? I mean, I remember in school, when I'm writing a paper, I want to know the word count. I'm not going to waste any more time giving you information when I'm already done. I mean, if it's 250 words, why would I write 700? I mean, let's just give you 251 and call it even. What is the, what is the word count that's needed? What, what is the, the length of time that's needed? What is the rehearsal schedule required for my prayer? Jesus is saying it's not about how many words, it's not how big they are, it's not how well rehearsed you are. He's saying, where's your motive, where's your heart when you talk to me? Caden, my daughter, when it's time for bed, it's amazing how much she wants to talk to me. She will make up all kinds of things to talk about. Caden, it's time to go to bed. But dad, 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 I wanted to talk to you about something. What is it, Caden? Uh, Hold on, I forgot. Just a minute, dad. Dad, dad. Just one more, I'm going to talk to you, and and we can go on and on and on, and we're not even sure what we're talking about. 
Because her real intent at that moment is not to talk with me, it's to not go to bed. This is what Jesus is saying. When you babble and you just go on and on and on, it's not that lengthy prayers are evil. It's, why are you praying like that? Are you just trying not to go to bed or do you really want to talk to your father? Are you just trying to be seen, trying to go through religious motion to give yourself some kind of spiritual goosebump? Or are you really wanting to talk to your father? The reverse is true when Caden comes home from school. I mean, she is so energized and juiced up. She wants to talk to me about her class and her teacher and what happened here. And She's got the job to carry the dry race markers for the whole year and it's an amazing thing. And it goes on and on and on. And as a loving dad, do I say, Caden, seriously, bullet points, two things, you're done, that's it. <laughs> no. Caden, it's kind of, you already told me that part. You've already told me about Miss Summers and how she's the best teacher in the world. I don't need to hear it. I want to hear everything she says, organized, unorganized. Put together well, not put together well, because her heart is wanting to pour out to dad what she experienced today at school. We see the difference. Jesus is saying, when you pray, let your heart be moved towards me. Not what others think or others hear or what others see. Jesus tells us to pray with sincerity and thoughtfulness. Well, how do we deal with this? Because most of us are not living at a seven-year-old's mindset, like that illustration with Caden. I think sometimes we don't pray with sincerity and thoughtfulness by some of these wonderful phrases we've created in prayer that were probably birthed in a moment of authenticity. Let me tell them myself. It's a couple years ago that I was going through a time and I really needed God's strength and wisdom in my life. I mean, that was as succinct as I could put it. It was as sincere as I could put it. And that was where my need was. But in complacency in the weeks to come, I became very accustomed to asking God for strength and wisdom. And pretty soon, I don't even know if I remembered what I was praying. I would pray, God, I pray that you'll be with me today. I pray that you'll give me your strength and wisdom. And I pray that you'll be with Carrie today, God. I pray that you'll give her strength and wisdom. And I think of Caden at, at Haley Elementary. Would you give her strength and wisdom today, Miss Silvers? Why don't you go ahead and give her strength and wisdom, God? I lift up our president today. Would you give him strength and wisdom? And God, you know this cold that I've been fighting today. Would you give my cold strength and wisdom? And And am I even talking to a holy God who's listening, or am I just reciting what used to be important to me? I'm not saying if there's a phrase that's meaningful to you to ditch it. No, but make sure it's meaningful. Do you know why you pray that? Is that still your heart, or was it your heart from yesterday? Or worse yet, was it somebody else's heart that you just mimicked? You see, God is way more concerned with the motive of our heart than with the technique or eloquence or impressive delivery of our prayers. He wants your heart. He wants you to cry out to Him, not because of who's around, but because He is there. Now, we're going to walk through this prayer in rapid fire in about a minute and a half. There's no way that we can go through this entire prayer and catch all the nuances of that, and maybe at a later time we'll go through that. But I want you to think of the motive of this model of prayer we just heard. I'm going to speed up my talker. You speed up your listener and writer. You ready? Here we go. It starts out, our Father, not my genie. Jesus wants us to know when we pray, our motives need to be intent on who we are talking to. It's our Father, not my genie. Why is that important? You have a loving Abba Father. You have a loving Daddy, not 
a cosmic vending machine. Why is it that we would settle for just punching the buttons on this cosmic computer that would spit out what we hope to have when we have a Abba Father, a Daddy who loves and listens to you? Jesus says, when your motives aren't right in prayer, you're the one missing out. God doesn't want to just spank you today to make you feel guilty. He says, you're missing out on the gift I'm giving you. The motive has to be focused on me. Second, God has placed us in a family of brothers and sisters, not isolated us in self-centeredness. So, well, Brady, where did you get that? That says, our Father. He just said, go into your room, your closet, and pray. Probably meaning this litmus test of secret prayer means it's just you. And when you pray, our Father, Jesus is saying, you aren't the focus of everything. There's other brothers and sisters around. There is a community that you're a part of. God is saying, I have created you to be a part of something bigger than yourself. Third, our Father in heaven. He's on the throne He's in heaven. He's not lost in space. Our faith should rise when we begin to even begin our prayer. Who am I praying to? Our Father. I'm not alone. I'm united with you. Our Father. My Daddy. Not some cosmic vending machine. He's the one who loves me. Gave His Son for me. Who is in heaven. He is in control. He has all authority. And this sets up these seven things that this model calls us to have in our prayer. Now here's where we begin to move real fast, and I want you to look at this and ask the question, what is the motive of this prayer? May your name be honored. There's worship. May your kingdom come. I expect your kingdom to come, God. May your will be done. I submit to you, not what I want, but what you want. God, Give me what I need today. I position God for what it is I need today. Forgive us. I confess to you, God. Forgive us. God, help me forgive others. I need compassion. Keep me from temptation, God. I can't do it on my own. I'm dependent on you. You see the tone of this prayer? You see the motive, the heart of this prayer? How does this prayer stack up to your prayers? Do you find that there's worship in your prayer? There's expectation that there's submission in your prayer. Do you find confession in your prayer? Compassion and dependence? Or is it just laced with petition everywhere? Jesus didn't say, don't petition me. He said, make sure your motive is right. What are the motives of our prayers? Reminds me of uh, this third and final piece. Chapter 6, verse 16 through 18. Says this. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. So that you will not be obvious to men that you are fasting but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, I believe, church, today that most of us don't have a problem with this. But let's examine it anyway. He's basically saying, don't fast for looks. 
When you fast, don't fast for a diet so you can lose weight. Don't fast so you can look extra spiritual. Don't fast to impress someone else. But like I said, I don't think we really have much problem with this one. Jesus is also saying when you fast, don't fast for what you abstain from. It's not just so you can give up food or you can punish yourself and deny yourself some kind of pleasure or joy or nutrient. Don't do that. That's not why I want you to fast. But church, I don't think we have much problem with that. What Jesus is calling us to do when we fast is, when you fast, make room for something. You fast for what you make room for. Church, the reason I don't think we struggle with this is there's very few things that we make room for in our life. We let anything that competes for our attention scream for our attention and take whatever is there. When was the last time that we said, I'm going to intentionally stop So I therefore can. Jesus says, I want to bless you, disciples. When you give, give because you have been given to. It doesn't matter who's there, who's not there. You're going to have the blessing of knowing that everything you have is not yours anyway. There's security in that. When you pray, don't pray for who's watching. Pray for a holy God who's listening. There's help and health in that. There's power in that. And when you fast, don't do it for looks. Don't do it to be spiritual. Create room. So when you don't eat lunch, don't sit there in misery and let everyone know how hungry you are. Pray. Read. When you fast television, don't sit there and twiddle your thumbs and go, wow, I don't know what's happening. Pray. Read. Serve. Jesus is saying, I have an embrace for you today. And the enemy wants you To turn it into a spanking from God. Simply put, a takeaway for us. As we take off today, when you live for the fickle and fleeting praise of people in your giving, in your prayer, and in your fasting, you forfeit the steadfast sheltering approval of God. There's somebody here today who your soul is aching for your Abba Daddy to hug you and say, my child, well done, I love you. Jesus says, let me change your motive on the stuff you have and how you give, on your heart and how you pray, and on your time and everything you take into your life and your body, and would you set some of it aside for me? Let's pray together, then we'll take off. Father, You have richly blessed us today, calling us out of the routine to stop and to wait on you. Many of us did not come prepared for Pastor Edgar to cause us to wait. But Jesus, I'm thanking you today that it wasn't Pastor Edgar who called us to wait. You called us to wait. I pray, God, that you will... Take the motives of our heart and you will radically transform them in a way that when we approach giving this week, it won't be for who's there or who's not there, but it will be what we are created to do. I pray that you will bring power back in our life again when we see prayer, not so much about a technique, a vocabulary, or even a location, but about who we are talking to. And Jesus, I pray that you'll convict some of us this week 
to say no to some things that may be good, like food, like media, like some recreation, and just create some space to intentionally spend time with you. But Jesus, I pray that you will bless these, my friends, today. I pray that your love that is so revolutionary will explode in their heart in such a way that the joy of you will be their strength this week. In your powerful name I pray. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. I look forward to seeing you tonight as we dive in to seeing what God has for us as we follow up on a Luke 15 call we had last week. Join us tonight for service as well. See you next week.